Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest vodcast. And I'm entitling this one CTA of Abdominal Vascular Pathologies, more the acute vascular pathologies. And this is a talk I was asked to give at the Texas Radiological Society this past weekend. Congratulations to Texas. 100th anniversary, pretty impressive, except for Pennsylvania. That's the oldest state radiologic society. First few members, Davy Crockett, Jim Bowie, Sam Houston, some people you may have heard about. Okay, when I speak about acute abdomen, um, we talk about a clinical syndrome characterized by the sudden onset of severe abdominal pain requiring emergency medical or surgical treatment. And we know there are many causes of the acute abdomen, Sometimes, depending on patient's age and sex and past medical history, you can literally target down to what we're thinking about. Obviously, a younger female, you think about TOA, right lower quadrant, you're thinking appendicitis. Patients on Coumadin, you're thinking about a bleed. And so we think about the acute abdomen. Not everybody needs imaging, often based on clinical findings and physical exam or lab findings. You can make a very specific diagnosis, but in other cases, and I've showed you this before, CT has a major impact on unsuspected diagnoses, as well as reinforcing diagnoses and making the clinicians more comfortable, but also changing the primary diagnosis. Now, when we're looking for things that are vascular related, protocol is critical. Protocol in terms of oral contrast water or neutral contrast agent or nothing. Do not use positive contrast. Positive contrast is a negative. And then IV contrast is mandatory. 100 to 120 ml of Omni 350 works well. We try to inject closer to five cc's, five or six cc's works very nicely, but you need to be at least above three. Okay, three is the magic minimum. Now, in terms of not giving oral contrast, there are many good reasons. Surely in terms of vascular applications, uh, positive contrast tends to diminish that interface between bowel or stomach and enhancement, and so subtle lesions, including subtle bleeds, are going to be missed. The other thing, quite frankly, we've gone to almost all water in the ER setting. Here was a recent article talking about uh, using uh, neutral agents and how it impacts uh, the time, the turnaround time, mean time from order to CT decreased by 66 minutes. No patients with CT negative for acute findings had a, additional subsequent imaging that changed the diagnosis. And in this case, they said eliminating oral contrast may be successful in decreasing length of stay and time from order to CT without compromising the patient's diagnosis. Agree 100%, but giving water, wait 15, 20 minutes, does not delay anything. So giving water is indeed ideal. Now, when you're doing vascular imaging, the question, depending on the application, will be the phases you need. We routinely do not, I repeat, do not do non-contrast scans and rarely do delayed. The question to me usually is, is arterial phase enough or should I throw a venous phase on top? Now, when you're doing these studies, you could do things several ways. You can do a fixed delay, bolus tracking, test bolus technique. I never do test bolus. I think that has the issue of having contrast on board already. You lose some of the very subtle signs. On the other hand, what I really like, fixed delay works very well for most patients going 30 seconds or so arterial, 30 or 35 seconds later venous. But probably the best thing to do, particularly when you get to older patients and cardiac output varies, just do bolus triggering. Bolus triggering works very nicely. Depending on your scanner, the trigger you use will vary. But in this case for the abdomen, I'm putting a trigger over the upper abdominal aorta, make a nice big circle, 
And with a faster scanner like a flash, you may be triggered at 250 or 270, depending on your injection rate. And you can see it'll hit a trigger point. And then what happens very nicely, you end up scanning through the peak of enhancement, in this case in the 500 to 520 range. And because you're scanning through the peak of enhancement, and it's fairly homogeneous, the column of contrast, you end up with very nice 3D reconstructions, which are critical with no artifacts being present. Once you get to 64 slice and beyond, the technique is critical in the sense thin sections under a sonometer. 0.75 millimeters by 0.5 millimeters works ideally, whether it's arterial or venous phase imaging. I've often spoken about the importance of not doing axial plane only, and with vascular imaging, you only do axial plane, you're going to miss a third of the diagnoses. And I always make the point, and like to show this example again, about how axial imaging shows you the Crohn's disease with the wall thickening and enhancement, and the coronal is much better because you have a better feel of the extent of disease as well as the vascular changes, but one would surely admit that when you do MIP imaging, you better understand the vasorector, the prominence this patient's act disease, and then when you go to volume rendering, the ability to not only see the vasorecta, but see the abnormal bowel wall enhancement, the abnormal bowel wall thickening, there's so much more information within the volume. So let's look at some examples. SMA syndrome. People would argue, is this really a syndrome? The answer is yes. Now, I will say that not every patient with a narrowed SMA angle has SMA syndrome. You need to have other findings included obstructed or dilated duodenum. But it can be seen in patients with marked weight loss, oncology patients, but we've seen it a number of times now in patients with anorexia nervosa. But what was important was these were unsuspected anorexia nervosa, and it helped us reach the correct diagnosis. It was originally described way back when in patients with total body casting. We talk about a normal SMA to a or at an angle of about 45 degrees. With SMA syndrome, we speak of under 25 degrees. And in fact, the real SMA syndromes is probably under 15 and often under 10. Then we talk about the distance of the SMA to aorta, and that distance will also narrow. And I'll show you some examples. Now, this patient thought it was ulcer disease or pancreatitis, abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting. You see the stomach is distended. There's residual food matter present. And as you scan the dilated stomach, you can see it's dilated in its entirety. Then the duodenum is also dilated. And when you follow the duodenum down, you'll notice that the duodenum narrows and the transition is just where the SMA is. And look at the space between the SMA and the aorta. It's markedly narrowed. When you look at it in the coronal view, Look how nicely you can see that transition point, just where the SMA is coming down. And when you look at this very carefully, and particularly on the sagittal view, look at the angle of the SMA and the aorta. The SMA is almost touching the aorta. It's under 10 degrees. The distance is a few millimeters. The renal vein is being compressed, which is the nutcracker phenomena. Renal vein compression is classic in SMA syndrome. Beautiful example. Another case. Here the stomach is dilated, but look at the duodenum. And when you follow the duodenum, you see its transition point is where the SMA comes. And here it is again in another example, same case, 
But then look at the SMA angle. It's markedly dilated. There's a classic case of SMA syndrome. This patient had surgery and the patient's symptoms did resolve. So SMA is one of the things that can present with an acute abdomen. You don't think about the SMA as an acute abdomen, but what the issue is, it's obstructing the duodenum. Patient has nausea and vomiting. That's why it's a presentation. Another thing that I've seen recently a whole lot of is the spontaneous dissection of the splanchnic arteries, both celiac and SMA. This article by Jung is a very good article to read. They talk about intimal flap, thrombose false lumen, aneurysmal dilatation, and the most common findings of spontaneous splanchnic artery dissection. What's interesting, this article makes the point, the question always is, how do you manage these patients? People say, well, you should put a stent in, you should operate. Well, their thing has been, when they look carefully, probably the best management in most cases, assuming the patient, of course, doesn't have bowel ischemia, is conservative management. Okay, that seems to work very well. And again, surgery might be needed in select cases, but we're picking up many of these patients who are minimal abdominal pain or asymptomatic. There's no evidence of bowel ischemia. So again, you have to be very careful. Now, the concern, of course, you have when you see a dissection, and here's one example. Here it is in the celiac. Can this extend? Can this occlude the vessel? You see some focal dilatation at the site of the dissection. So you feel like you should do something. It's always hard to simply watch, but that may be the best thing to do. Another example, mild dilatation of the celiac non-contrast, but look at it with contrast. Again, another good example of something you're not gonna recognize unless you give IV contrast, but look at the section in the patient's celiac axis, and you follow this downward, and you can see the section also in the SMA, and when you look carefully, here it is on the sagittal views, look at the SMA particularly, beautiful dissection. And when you look further down, in fact, look at the sort of focal dilatation and narrowing of the vessels, it actually looks like a case of maybe a vasculitis I'd be thinking of here. But what you're really dealing with is multiple focal dissections and then focal areas of dilatation. You can imagine why this patient could easily develop ischemia because any of these vessels can occlude in no time. But how do you treat this patient? That's where the question of anticoagulant therapy, but that's not proven to be that helpful. So again, it's a very difficult situation. Now, as I said, this SAM spontaneous arteriolysis um, is something, there's no t history that goes along with it, typically. Now, other patients can get dissections, patients with processes like Ehlers-Danlos, we have a vasculitis. In this case, you can see very nicely the dissection and focal dilatation beyond it. So those patients can't present, but again, if you have an Ehlers-Danlos patient, you're thinking about dissection or occlusion. So this, these spontaneous dissections are kind of something that's becoming very popular in the literature, and we are, believe it or not, seeing it very common. It's easy to miss only on the axial imaging. Surely you don't have a good injection or you don't widen the window, but it's something you will be seeing more of. Now, when I speak about the acute setting, uh, a critical thing, of course, in terms of vascular is bowel bleeding. And there's no doubt CT is really good, be it small bowel bleeding or large bowel bleeding. When we talk about upper GI bleeding, we talk about upper and lower GI bleeding. Upper GI bleeding is meant to be proximal to the ligament of trites and accounts for about 70% of bleeds with a 10% mortality. Lower GI bleeds distal to the ligament of trites and accounts for about 30% of GI bleeding. 
When you talk about these lower GI bleeds, specifically angiodysplasia is the number one cause, vascular dysplasia, small bowel neoplasms, both benign and malignant, are not uncommon, and then, of course, Meckel's diverticulum. A number of articles, Yoon, this is going back to the 16-slice era, spoke about how arterial phase imaging was ideal for looking and detecting GI bleeding. And in fact, in his series, he was 100% accurate, which is indeed pretty impressive. Uh, we have also had really good success with GI bleeding. Here was an article by Karen Horton and the groups at Hopkins and Stanford, again, mapping with 3D imaging, very critical for detecting the site and pointing out relevant anatomy, very, very important. This article by Steiner talking about how CTA is an important non-invasive diagnostic tool in the management of GI bleeding, that it's important for being able to detect areas of extravasation, detecting small pseudoaneurysms, and a very, very valuable tool for the interventional radiologist allowing the planning of possible endovascular treatment options prior to angiography. He also made the point that CTA is more sensitive. You can pick up bleeding at 0.3 ml per minute. DSA is 0.5 ml per minute. So let me show you a few examples. Now, one thing very important I mentioned, do not give positive contrast because you're looking for a blush. The blush may be subtle. Some people will say do a non-contrast scan first because if the patient has high-density material in bowel, food, or pills, perhaps you can confuse that with a bleed. I don't think that's a problem, but I'll show you why in a bit. But here's a subtle example, and you see this looks like an area of enhancement in the patient's uh, jejunum. I'll show it to you again. Okay, I'll show it to you in a coronal view. I think in the coronal view, you see the loop of bowel, and you see what looks like several bright dots that are present. But this also brings to the point about 3D imaging. If I go to MIP, MIP is the best way of looking for subtle bleeding. Look at the multiple foci of vascular abnormalities in that patient's loop. This is a patient with angiodysplasia. This was eventually resected. Very, very obvious but it wasn't so obvious when you look back at the routine coronal. Yes, you should see it if you look carefully, but the MIP, it would be very hard to miss. Now, this case had multiple sites of potential bleed. Sometimes there's only one site. Here's another patient with an angiodysplasia in the jejunum, uh, eight millimeter bleeding focus, nicely seen there and there. And then also very nicely seen when we go to the 3D mapping. So you can see the blushes can be very subtle, so you need to look carefully at the data sets, but you can see how helpful the 2D and 3Ds are. I find that the 3D MIP is particularly critical in detecting very, very small bleeds. Now, I mentioned before one cause are tumors. We think of just tumor as large tumors. Stomach is most common. Uh, small bowel second, but here's a two centimeter gist tumor. You can see the lesion's vascular and it's exophytic, classic for a gist tumor, and gist tumors can bleed. And CT is very good, as in this case, in detecting that site of bleeding. And again, very nicely shown in this regard. You can see in that case the gist tumor was mainly exophytic. Here's a nice example of a bright blush in the bowel. 
patient had GI bleeding. This ended up being a gist tumor under three centimeters. Now you could say this could be a carcinoid. Indeed, it could be. Adenocarcinoma, probably not because it's too vascular. But that's the site of bleeding. Look how nicely you can see that neutral contrast agent, how the MIP imaging, the volume rendering works so well. Here's some more MIP images. You can see some small feeding jejunal branch vessels to the lesion. And here it is in one more perspective. So again, easy when you do the study correctly. The oral contrast needs to be neutral, fast IV injection, multiple 3D images. Very nice example of a gist causing a GI bleed. And this was indeed resected. No great surprise. I've seen one other vascular lesion was with hemangioma, but usually I'm thinking gist and I'm thinking carcinoid. And in my experience, gist is more likely to bleed. What about this case? Patient abdominal pain and GI bleeding. Well, look at the descending colon. You also look in the pelvis, and I just want to tell you that high density in the pelvis is uterine fibroids. So we, don't worry about that. But look at the descending colon. You see that bright blush there? Perhaps it's foreign matter. But there it is in the MIP. You can see it looks like a feeding vessel going into it. That's an active bleed from an area of diverticular disease proven at endoscopy. But look at the multiple images I'm showing you. See the bright blush? But then what happens when I go 60 seconds later, the bleed is even more extensive. And this is a point I wanted to make, why I don't need to do non-contrast scans. When you have a bleed, even though the scans are only 30 seconds apart, arterial venous, there is a change. Either the bleed decreases or decreases. It changes somehow or other. In this case, the blush became more extensive, and so it's very obvious what you're dealing with. Very, very nice example, okay? So this is something that indeed is very important in terms of being able to detect sites of bleeds. Now, patients come in with bleeding, we don't know if it's large bowel or small bowel. Here's a very, very nice example of large bowel bleeding. Another case, often people don't pay attention to the area of the rectum. Well, look at those bright vessels that are sitting in the rectum in this patient with history of GI bleeding. Well, look at it from the sagittal view. Look at those prominent vessels. This is literally like large varices, okay? You can think of an AV malformation. Look at the coronal view. Beautiful visualization of those large varices. This patient has varices. Very common in patients who have portal hypertension. It's a collateral pathway, but they can bleed. We tend not to pay attention there. Very, very important. Article by Shiva Rahman coming out in press, talking about MIP imaging for being able to pick up areas of extravasation, the importance of looking at the lower bowel. This case really focused on that. CT can provide a wealth of valuable information beyond the presence of, or absence of active conscious extravasation and bleeding, such as bowel inflammation, perirectal inflammation, or the presence of an underlying vascular anomaly. So again, a very important article worthwhile reading. Now, what else? When you think about uh, acute processes, you also, of course, have to think about the possibility of ischemia. Now, ischemia is something we speak about as a routine, routine discussion when we speak about the patients with uh, small bowel processes. But what I think we'll do in this situation, let's... Um, I know it's running late, but let's just spend a few minutes talking about ischemic bowel. I know I've spoken about this before in other lectures, but let me make some points. Ischemic bowel could be arterial or venous. It can be a challenge to diagnose. 
the key to patient survival is early detection, but the earliest CT findings are maybe bowel dilatation and maybe some minimal thickening. When you get to things like intramural gas and mesenteric or portal venous air, that's way down the road, and those patients are going to have high morbidity, high mortality. You want to be earlier. A key thing is looking at the vessels. Atherosclerotic disease is not uncommon, and here you can see disease in the celiac and SMA. But you also can see in this patient with an aneurysm, the vessels are widely patent. But what about this case? I've given you a very nice view of the patient's SMA, and you can see clot in the SMA. The SMA on sagittal view is not occluded, but there's 80% narrowing. There's also more distally in the SMA, you can see clot. This is a patient who has ischemic bowel because of this clot. This clot was eventually removed. The patient managed to survive without bowel resection. Beautiful example. Or this case. It looks like a non-contrast CT. The bowel's dilated, but it's not enhancing. This worried me. You might also suggest some early pneumatosis. But look at this patient. When you get the sagittal view, look at the SMA. It looks perfect for about three centimeters. Then it's occluded. The patient went to surgery. The patient had some bowel resection. Thrombus was removed. Here's the SMA several weeks later. Again, very important. This case really shows you nicely that you can have occlusion of the SMA even though the vessel looks so good proximally. People often look at those proximal images and don't follow the SMA down. You need to follow the SMA down, and sagittal view really makes your life easier. Very nice example. Another case, the same thing. Beautiful SMA proximally, but then it's occluded. Look at the bowel. It's thickened. It's ischemic. This patient went to surgery. The thrombus was removed. This patient was very lucky. The bowel became pink. The surgeons watched every half hour. They then closed without bowel resection. Very, very important. And I've seen a number of missed cases like this. Here was a patient, abdominal pain. This was read as negative, and you look at the SMA, it looks okay, but then when you follow the SMA further down, you kind of notice it begins to narrow, and then it's occluded. This was missed. It's easy to miss, there's no inflammation around, the vessel's kind of small, but look what happens when you look at the sagittal view. The vessel looks beautiful for six centimeters, but then the vessel's occluded. It's very obvious the presence of thrombus present. So again, a very nice example of that pathology. And again, the importance of looking carefully at those sagittal views. Now in this case, the SMA and celiac are patent, but when the SMA and celiac are this thin, I worry about a low flow state, I worry about ischemic bowel, and that's what I'm gonna tell the surgeons, and that's indeed what this patient had. Now, there are other causes of the acute abdomen in terms of vascular, so let me just talk about the kidney very briefly and look at two vascular things. One would be acute renal vein thrombosis, which can be due to hypercoagulability states, can be due to tumor extension, can be due to trauma. Things you typically see are the thrombus in the vessel. The kidney may be large acutely, cortical medullary differentiation may persist, you may see thickening of the gerotus fascia or stranding of the perirenal fat. And here's a very nice example. Look at the differential enhancement left to right kidney, delayed nephrogram on the left, large thrombus, renal vein into IVC, beautifully seen. Now, of course, when you have thrombus, as in this case, you have to worry about tumor. But as we said, infection, anticoagulant therapy are all possible causes. The other thing is not so much on the venous side, but the arterial side. 
When we think about renal infarction, which is indeed very common, it can be post-operative, it can be due to patients with vasculitis, it can be due to embolism or trauma. When you look at the CT, it can be segmental, most of the time it is, but it can be global. It can be an isolated process or part of a multi-system organ involvement. You can have acute and chronic renal infarction. And again, it challenges the patient's presentation. It's sort of an acute abdomen, often acute flank pain, sometimes FUO, sometimes hematuria. So it's a real challenge. The CT appearance, I think most of you are aware of, this focal versus global involvement. Again, depending on the cause, that indeed is what you will see. Cortical rim sawing with global infarction due to flow through the uh, vasovasorum. But again, you can see some nice examples. Here's a great case of an infarct in the right kidney. And when you look at the multiple images and you look at the patient's right renal artery, you can see the renal artery has a thrombus sitting in it. Just a beautiful example of infarct in the kidney due to arterial thrombosis, nicely seen at the arrow there. Again, notice the differential enhancement of the right kidney compared to the normal cortical measure differentiation of the left kidney. And this often shows, as in this case, very nicely in coronal plane, as well as 3D coronal plane. You can see the extent of the areas of infarction very nicely. Often patients might have two renal arteries, so one portion of the kidney can look good and one can be totally infarcted. When we think about renal infarcts, you may see other things as well. Splenic infarcts are very common at the same time. And of course, patients with renal infarcts, not uncommonly have endocarditis, and then you can see splenic infarcts, you can see hepatic infarcts, though they're rarer. You can see bowel ischemia. So multiple organ involvement, in this case, splenic infarcts, and renal infarcts, very, very nicely seen. At times, as in this case, renal infarcts can simulate an abscess, renal infarcts can simulate a tumor. I think at times it can be a very tricky diagnosis. Usually the history makes it easy, and so in this case, what are you dealing with? Poor perfusion left kidney, very minimal normal perfusion in the left kidney shown on the 3D views. Well, when you get the patient's images and you start looking carefully, you realize this patient was showering emboli from thrombus in the patient's left atrial appendage. Oh, by the way, the patient also has an anomalous right coronary artery, but you can see very nicely the thrombus in the patient's left atrial appendage. I mentioned before global infarction. You get flow through capsular vessels, and here, the, unfortunately, this patient had aortic aneurysm repair. Uh, the renal artery could not be salvaged and you can see the patient's infarct. So again, a global infarct, you get flow through capsular vessels. Otherwise, when you have more segmental infarcts, you can see these perfusion changes much more commonly. And here's just a nice example in that same patient, and the kidney will have to be resected. So concluding then, acute vascular pathologies are a common source of abdominal pain. Think of critical GI-type things, SMA syndrome, this uh, dissections of the mesenteric vessels, GI bleeding, the critical nature of CTA, the critical nature of 3D mapping. Also, when you have this abdominal pain, you're thinking vascular, take a good look at the kidneys. The kidneys may be the sole site of disease, renal side on the venous or arterial side, or it may be multi-organ involvement. And I think when you do that, you're gonna indeed be very successful. Now with that, let me stop and uh, wish you a great day.